As we come to our final sermon in our segment uh, out of the whole series, Jesus Wins, we've been looking at evidence of victory, seen through his resurrection, his ascension, and last Sunday and this Sunday, even while he's on the cross, the victorious Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's turn our attention to John chapter 19. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. I'd like to reread that. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his own home. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells you the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. Mother's Day. Whenever Mother's Day comes, I can't help but think of my favorite Mother's Day poem. Rudyard Kipling wrote, If I were hanged from the highest hill, O mother mine, O mother mine, I know whose love would follow me still. Mother of mine, O mother of mine. If I were drowned in the deepest sea, Mother of mine, O mother of mine, I know whose tears would come down to me, mother of mine, oh, mother of mine. If I were damned of body and soul, I know whose prayers would make me whole, mother of mine, oh, mother of mine. When Mother Day comes around, I think of passages of Scripture, particularly the one that Doug read for us earlier, Proverbs 31, about the wonderful godly woman. And then also this passage, 
where near the cross of Jesus stood his mother Mary. And then I can't help but think of my maternal parents. I was blessed with two mothers. My birth mother, Wanda, she lived for two and a half years after I was born, and then the Lord called her home. I can always remember my paternal grandfather saying about me, I never saw a boy that looked more like his mother. Now, I don't know if that was a compliment to my mother or not, <laughs> but I always felt it was a compliment to me. And then a little bit later, after my mom had gone to heaven, God brought another wonderful lady into the life of my father and myself, Pam. And after they had married for a while and other siblings began to come, she wanted me to feel completely apart with her, and so she adopted me at the age of eight. I can still remember as an eight-year-old boy sitting in the courthouse. It was kind of exciting to answer questions from the judge, and then my mom took me home and celebrated with my favorite meal, tacos, and then ice cream for dessert. And I always remember there was a missionary lady from uh, Africa who was uh, at our church in a missionary conference, and she came and spent the day with us that day and helped me celebrate. And I remember her praying a blessing upon me that day. Her name was Gladys Baines. And so I'm thankful. Both my moms are in heaven now, but I look forward to the day of reunion. And so these are some of the things that Mother's Day means to me. As I came to our passage today, and I began to prepare the sermon, two truths that Doug has been sharing with us uh, came to my heart. One is that Jesus on the cross was not a victim, but rather was the victor. And secondly, as Doug has often said, you can learn some things about a person by the way they live. Sometimes you can learn more about them by the way they die. And Jesus Christ lived victoriously. But I'm here to tell you today, he died victoriously. He was not a defeated foe upon the cross. He was not a withered wimp. He was not a crushed and crumpled man. He was victorious even on the cross. And he teaches us to live victoriously, but on the cross he teaches us as well to die victoriously. As we think of Jesus' mother standing near the cross, what about Mary? Sometimes my Catholic friends will ask me, now you, you Protestants, just what do you believe about Mary? Well, I share with them that for myself, I do not worship Mary. I do not pray to Mary, nor do I ask Mary to pray for me. But I am in complete respect of Mary, agreeing with the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, where the Bible says, the angel came to Mary and said, Hail, you who are highly favored. I agree with Elizabeth, her relative, who said in Luke in chapter 1, Verses 42 and 43, blessed are you among women, and you are the mother of my Lord. I even agree with Matthew Henry, a famed Protestant commentator from years gone by, who in his writings referred to Mary as the Blessed Virgin. And so, while not worshiping her, we have the greatest respect for Mary. As a chosen vessel of God, as a wonderful mother, the wonderful mother of our Lord. I think of her relationship with the Lord Jesus, rather unique in the Scriptures, obviously the only virgin to be overshadowed by the Holy Ghost, 
and to give birth to a child without any seed of a man involved. But along with that, we find her at the age of 12, coming with Joseph back to the temple where young Jesus is sitting discussing things of God's law with the leaders there and saying, Son, we've sought you sorrowing. And Jesus saying to his mother, it almost sounds a little disrespectful to us, Don't you know I must be about my father's business? And I don't believe Jesus was disrespectful at all, but he was signifying the importance of his father's will, heavenly father. And then we find him beginning his ministry, and in John 2, Mary coming to him at a wedding and saying, Son, they're out of wine. And Jesus turns the water into wine. Two times we have references to her, though there's not direct interaction. One is in Mark in chapter 3, verses 32 through 35. And that's where Mary and some of Jesus' family comes to see him. They're outside the crowd. And the crowd says to Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside to see you. And Jesus said, who is my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Are not those who do God's will my mother and brothers and sisters? And you know, almost again, it sounds disrespectful. But Jesus is signifying the importance of the spiritual relationship. Another time, a lady called out in Luke chapter 11 and verse 27 to him and said, Blessed is the woman who gave you birth and the breast that nursed you. And Jesus replied, Blessed rather are those who hear God's word and keep it. The Lord Jesus never would disrespect his mother. We read about him here calling her dear woman. And back in John 2, at the wedding at the well, he says to her woman or dear woman, some translated. And some almost feel like he's being distant or disrespectful there. From all the study that I can do, it's, it's actually a, a courteous term along the lines of what we might say about somebody. Ma'am, I know my mother would speak to me at times. I'd say, ma'am, <laughs> yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And if I didn't, she would remind me. I'm to say, ma'am. And uh, so it was a term of respect. And in the Lord Jesus is always respectful to his mother. But he emphasizes the importance of the special, of the spiritual relationship. And ultimately, you won't go to heaven because of who your mom and dad are. You'll go to heaven because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we always have to keep that in mind. And so physical Human relationships are important, but the spiritual is the epitome. Paul, the apostle, taught that as well in the book of Romans. When he taught Israelite people, he said, listen, it's not so much a deal that you're an Israelite physically. He said, you're a true Israelite if you're an Israelite in your heart, in your faith toward God. And so Jesus emphasizes the spiritual relationship. And then, of course, we find her here standing at the cross. A second question might come to us, why John? Why did Jesus assign Mary to be taken care of in her future years by John? Most Bible students who studied church tradition and church uh, history believe that Mary would live about another 11 to 15 years past the cross. And that during that time, she either stayed in Jerusalem with John or eventually perhaps moved with him to the city of Ephesus. But why John? And we're pretty certain it's John because six times in the Gospel of John, this writer of John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then at the end of the Gospel of John, he says that disciple is the one who wrote these things. 
So since the church throughout time has assigned John this gospel, we believe it's the Apostle John whom Jesus says to Mary, you go home with John, and John, you take care of my mother. And so we believe it's John because John is Jesus' best friend, the disciple whom he loved. Secondly, it could well be that John was a relative of Jesus. When you study the four women listed at the cross, Mary, Mary's sister, Mary Magdalene, and a Mary who was the wife of Clopas, and you compare that with the Gospel of Mark and its listing, and the Gospel of Matthew and its listing, we're pretty certain that Salome and Mary, or I'm sorry, the mother of Zebedee's children, James and John, and Mary's sister are all the same person. That would make Jesus and John cousins. And so he's sending him home, her home, with a relative. Thirdly, we believe that John the Apostle probably came from a family with some money. Because when he is called to follow Jesus in Mark chapter 1 and verse 20, the Bible says that he leaves the fishing boat along with his brother James, and they leave their father and the nets and the hired men. You had to have some money to hire others to work for you in that, in that society. And so there's a belief, along with some other things that I'll not spend time on today, that John probably came from a family that had some money. So the Lord Jesus is making sure that his mother is financially secure. Perhaps most importantly, Jesus sends John or sends Mary home with John because of the spiritual factor. Now, you also might say, now where's Joseph, Mary's husband? We have no reference to Joseph anywhere in the years of Jesus' public ministry. So by and in large, the church has agreed that Joseph had already passed away. Why wouldn't Jesus give Mary to what we believe were his younger brothers and sisters? Well, the Bible says in John 7 and verse 5, up to this point, they did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah yet. But John certainly is in spirit, spiritually in tune with Jesus. So he says, Mary, or mom, or ma'am, or dear woman, you go home with him, and here's your mother to John. And there's the spiritual factor, Jesus indicating to us that while physical care is important, so is spiritual care. And I must say to every family member here today, particularly parents, it's wonderful if you provide for your kids a good education and sports opportunities and uh, uh, arts and music opportunities and vacations and good food, etc., etc. But we would be neglecting what Christ wants of us if we're not providing a spiritual foundation as well. If we're not upholding to our families the importance of the relationship with the Lord as much as any other physical care we might provide. But I want to say conversely, too. Here's Jesus about to die. He'll be resurrected on this earth for 40 days and then ascending to heaven. And so he says, dear woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Or here's your mother. And he wants Mary physically taken care of because Jesus is going to heaven. And that's a reminder as well to us, to the church at large and to us as individuals. Our Lord Jesus is with us in spirit. He promises that. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But he leaves the physical care to our responsibility. Jesus isn't going to pick up your kids at school. <laughs> Jesus isn't going to prepare dinner. 
Jesus isn't going to feed the hungry. Jesus isn't going to visit the sick. Jesus isn't going to go see folks in the hospital. Jesus isn't going to bind up the brokenhearted. In the sense, he will certainly do it spiritually by his spirit, but he uses us to do it. He said, John, I'm physically no longer going to be here, so please take care of my mother. And so our Lord Jesus emphasizes the importance of spiritual care and physical provision. With that in mind, as we think of Jesus and his mother near the cross, I want us to think of him being victorious on the cross. First of all, notice by the points here, the God-man is on display. Again, victorious on the cross. You see, the Lord Jesus, we believe, is absolutely fully divine, or God. We believe the Lord Jesus, as the Son of Mary, was fully human as well. Deity and humanity together. And despite the judgment on the cross and the onslaught of the wicked one, his togetherness as the God-man is not diminished. You see, he illustrates both his divinity as humanity when he's in a conversation with Nicodemus back in John 3. Because he begins in verse 13 as he's talking to Nicodemus and said, No one has ever gone to heaven except he who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Even as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him shall have eternal life. You see, Son of Man, a term for his humanity. Then in the very next verse, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it through Him. Verse 18, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. In five verses, Jesus has said, I'm the Son of Man, and I'm the Son of God. Deity and humanity. We see it on full display even on the cross because he speaks both to his heavenly father and to his earthly mother. He begins with his first statement and says, soldiers are crucifying him and the crowd is mocking him. He says, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Two statements later, he will speak to his earthly mother. Dear woman, behold your son. His final statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right there on the cross, his godness, his manness, his humanity, and his deity are intact even on the cross as he speaks to both his heavenly father and his earthly mother. Secondly, he's victorious on the cross. Because of note here, it's a good note. <laughs> the law of God is fulfilled. You see, even on the cross, Jesus is doing what he's always done. And that's fulfilling the law of God. He had already said in the gospel according to Matthew, I 
didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. He always fulfilled the law. And here he is on the cross fulfilling the fourth commandment, which apparently was always important to him. Because when he meets the rich young ruler, what does he say to him? He says, you know the commandments, and he lists among them, honor your father and mother. He chastises the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. He says, because you have made God's law of none effect. God's law says, honor your father and mother. But you have allowed a religious loophole called Corbin, whereby somebody who financially should care for their father and mother instead makes a declaration, well, this is Corbin or a gift dedicated to God. So mom and dad, I can't bail you out because I've already set aside the money for God. Jesus said, you hypocrites. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, you don't serve God at the expense of your family. Now, your family may not agree with you, but you and I are not to ignore family. Now, we know that Jesus said, you love me more than anything, but we still have an appropriate biblical care for family. Here they had created a religious loophole to get around fulfilling the fourth commandment. That didn't go with the Lord Jesus. He was always fulfilling the law of God. And in so doing, that is a testimony to us that he was the perfect sacrifice. You see, the Bible says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 18, he's the righteous dying for the unrighteous. John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And do not forget, the sacrificial requirement was that the Lamb was flawless. That it might be received as the sacrifice for the sinner. And also the Bible says, He who had no sin, 1 Corinthians 5.20, became sin for us. There upon the cross, the Lord Jesus is testifying. He is completely fulfilling God's law. He is completely doing God's will. He is absolutely doing the right thing. He is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Thirdly, victoriously on the cross, we see the compassion of Jesus Christ. Now, it's almost surprising, isn't it, to think of compassion coming from a cross. But our Lord Jesus showed it all, way, all the way through his experience on the cross. He's already prayed for those crucifying him. Father, forgive them. He's already spoken to the repentant thief. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Here, he is saying, dear woman, behold your son. Here is your mother to John. He is compassionate to his mom, as well as the soldiers and as well as the repentant thief. Compassion coming from a cross. Amazing. You see, we see that kind of interesting aspect throughout the scriptures. Did you know the greatest offering came out of poverty? Because when the Lord Jesus is watching people give their offerings in the temple one day, a little widow lady came in. She only had two cents. She put it in the offering plate, and Jesus said she's given the biggest offering of all because she gave everything she had. Let me tell you something. From our perspective, the biggest offerings have the most zeros. From God's perspective, the biggest offering is how much we give out of how much we have. It's interesting. 
The Bible tells us it is out of our troubles that spiritual maturity comes. James in chapter 1. He said, brothers, count it all joy when you all fall into various trials because the trying of your faith works patience and let patience have its complete work for when patience has its complete work, you are mature and complete. Perfect, the King James says. Not perfect as without sin, but completed. You arrive at spiritual maturity, not when you do what's right when things are good, but when you do what's right when things are bad. Let me tell you something, and I'm saying it reverently. Jesus was having a bad day. He had been betrayed. He had been mocked. He had been tried all night, moved from one place to another. He's been forsaken by many. He's been beaten by soldiers. His beard has been ripped from his face. He has been flogged with a cat of nine tails. He has been tried in every way mockingly. And now he's hanging naked on a cross while they're gambling for his clothes. He's had nails in his hands, nail in his feet, and soon a spear will go in his side. And in spite of all of that, he has compassion for his mother. Now think about you and I. A lot of times when we have a bad day at work or at school or in the neighborhood or socially, what do we do? We come home and take it out on our families. We need to be more like Jesus. And by the way, think back to point number two. When Jesus was having a bad day. He insisted on fulfilling God's law. Sometimes when you and I are having a bad day, we want to chuck God's law and say, fulfill it, forget it. Oh, to be like Jesus. Victorious even on the cross. Compassion. You know, it's a funny thing about pastoring. Sometimes I'll go to the hospital or I'll go to someone in crisis or someone that's hurting. And I know Doug and Jerry have had the same experience. And you go and you're there to encourage them. The next thing you know, they're asking you about, how are you doing? How's your family? How's the church? How's everything going? And I walk away thinking, wait a minute. This is messed up. I went to encourage them because they're the one hurting. And I'm the one that comes away encouraged. Now that's like Jesus. Finally, victorious on the cross illustrating one of God's greatest priorities the importance of family relationships even on the cross Jesus is still focused on the priorities of heaven you say family relationships are that important that Jesus was focused on it even on the cross oh yeah you don't believe that you need to go home this afternoon you need to open your Bible and you need to study 1st Timothy chapter 5 verses 4 through 8 Paul is instructing there the early churches about how to care for widows because they didn't have the social and financial networks we have today to care for people and so Paul said if somebody's a widow indeed they don't have any family then the church is to care for them but if they have children or grandchildren those children or grandchildren are responsible to care for that widow it's to come from the family and he Paul's goes on to say if you are someone who has parents or grandparents who need care you are responsible spiritually to do that this is pleasing to God 
He goes on to say, and this is almost overwhelming to me, but he goes on to say in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, if anyone claims to be a Christian, and I've paraphrased there, but if anyone does not care for his relatives or provide for his relatives, especially those of his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, I've wrestled with that. What is it to be worse than an unbeliever? I mean, that's the worst, isn't it? What is it to be worse than an unbeliever? All I can come up with is this, that if you, though you claim to be a Christian, are abusive or negligent or do not work to decently provide for your family, if at all possible, God has more respect for an unbeliever who cares for their family than for somebody who claims to be his child and is abusive or neglectful or doesn't provide properly for their own family. The Lord Jesus Christ victorious on the cross. He's still the God-man. He fulfilled the law of God even there. He showed compassion even from the cross. And he cared for his mother in the most difficult of circumstances. He made sure she was taken care of. I got to tell you, in the time I've been in Hebron, there's a whole lot of people around here that just impress me to death. They're a blessing to me. But there's two groups of people that consistently have stirred my spirit. I've seen a group of people in this church. Many of them are daughters, but they go out of their way above and beyond to care for their parents who are aging. And I think, man, that is godly. That's like Jesus. And another set of folks in this fellowship that always bless me are families who care for their children with disabilities. That's like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to tell you this morning is we need to be victorious like Jesus, even when we're bearing a cross. Amen?